Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer, Influencers, and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto-steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Keith Thompson, inventor of the Thompson Closing Wheel, no-tills about 3,000 acres of corn, grain, sorghum, soybeans, rye, triticale, sunflowers, sesame, and pasture in Osage City, Kansas. An innovator at heart, Thompson has adapted and improved on his equipment time and time again ever since he started experimenting with no-till in the 1970s. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lesseter talks with Thompson about how his understanding of no-till evolved through experiments with ridge-till, skip-till, and strip-till before he converted 100% to no-till in 1991. Thompson talks about how he developed the Thompson Closing Wheel, his experience using the IntelliCoat polymer seed coating for double-crop soybeans, integrating perennial pasture in his crop rotation, and much more. you grow up on the family farm? Yes, I did. Grew up on the farm. What generation are you? You know, it's interesting. I want to say first, out of, my dad, my grandpa sort of farmed, but mm-hmm. that's not what he really did. <laughs> <laughs> he was around farm stuff. He, most of my life, I remember him uh, being a buyer seller for cattle and hogs. Sure. Okay. Well, I was the sixth generation on our farm in uh, north of Detroit, about 40 miles, but it's all houses now. But uh, it, was oh, in, it was in the family for about 130 years or so. Yeah. So uh, you're farming now with your son? And my brother. How many acres are you farming? Oh, I think the total is around 3,000, mm-hmm. you know, with the pastures and everything. So you said pastures, so I assume you're running cattle. Yes, my son got the cattle bug when we visited Argentina in 1999. Uh-huh, that's a teach you to take him down there on vacation. So <laughs> this is a cow-calf herd? Yes, he's got a cow-calf rogue herd, what he might call it. You know, we don't have, it's not any, he goes for uh, breeding cows calves to get the most genetic benefit out of it and he changes bulls every so often you know the breed of bull sure and, uh, huh? lots of crossbreeding in our herd so how many cows you running i'm gonna guess he's up to 150 now so i i went back and pulled up a couple articles we'd done in no-till farmer about you so i got a little background you started hearing about no-till at Kansas State, I think, in 1973. Yes, sir. That's right. Tell me about that experience. Taking a soils class in agronomy, and they were talking about, you know, what they were doing back in Kentucky, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And as much as I hated <laughs> field work, made me really like, hey, you know, there's there's something to get rid of plowing and disking and all those. 
Right. And, uh, you know, really plowing wasn't that bad of a job. Other than it was tedious. It was every job after that to get ready for planning that sucked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Rough, dirt blowing. No, no cabs in those days. Dirt mm-hmm. blowing in your face. And I, you know, like, I do not want to go through this the rest of my life. And that whole idea of just planting really appealed to me. Right. Ray Cook was a soil scientist at Michigan State, and that's where I went to school. But before mm-hmm. I was in school, he came up with this wheel track planting system, which was kind of a forerunner of minimum tillage. And my dad tried it for two years. What you did is you plowed, and your next trip was with the planter. Mm. So it was pretty rough, and I think my dad really gave it up after two years because it was going to kill his kidneys. It was so damn rough to plant in that. But that was kind of the forerunner of minimum tillage, and then Ray Cook went on and had some other minimum tillage ideas. But if you think plowing was fun, you wouldn't have liked it when you were planting in a plow plant system. I, I can't imagine how bad. I tried it with a, one of the first times I we tried it with an old Lister. Sure. Uh, and, oh, I kind of have an idea of what went wrong. Yeah. So what yeah. crops are you planting now? Well, we know we do corn, grain sorghum, soybeans, lots of rye, triticale, sunflowers. I tried some um, sesame mm-hmm. this year. I've grown mung beans. Those would be in the ones that I've got other ideas. I'd like to grow some things. One of the things we've been talking about is growing small plots of our own cover crop seed. Are you still planting wheat? No, I almost completely give up wheat. Couldn't make money at it. When you're talking about rye, is it a, it's not a cover crop, it's a cash crop? Both. Okay. Both. And yeah. uh, you're selling the, the the rye, it's not forage, it's grain, For right? Grain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, what we'll do is I get about every acre covered, planted with rye, mm-hmm. and certain fields will overseed a little bit or fertilize it or do something. And, you know, once it comes up, you know, you know, you can pick out the ones that look the best. Sure. And we start treating them a little bit different and we harvest enough of the rye to, for, to make sure we have at least our seed covered mm-hmm. for the next year and plant double crop milo or something like that into it. Right. Well, the article I'm looking at, you, it says between 1973 and 90, you tried about any system there was, maybe some ridge till, skip till, strip till. They weren't all that impressive for you at first, right? No. You know, the every one of those, my nemesis ended up being a weed problem. Okay. And my weed problem was wild cane mm-hmm. and i had that was really you know honest with you there was lots of reasons to move to no-till besides the part i didn't like working tilled ground sure but i remember uh, reading somewhere that if you weren't tilling the ground you'd get rid of the cane seed and that was one of the besides the erosion factors and blowing and the kind of normal things back in 91 that you thought of. The other one was to get rid of wild cane. <laughs> it made it too hard to cr- You couldn't grow good grain sorghums. The reason I wanted to get rid of cane. Right. So I, I'm reading the article here, and your uh, Bud uh, Davis was kind of the guy that kept after you to really give no to a shot, right? Yes. Well, he, keep, you know, he kept telling me what I was farming, 
or the way we were farming was, you know, you're, you're just getting too much soil movement. And I'm like, well, that's, no, I'm not, because, you know, everything you read and everything you're told, that's a really good way to farm. You know, it was minimum killing in those days and doing some no-till. That's where the skip-till deal was at. And he he got after me. That was one. But the real deal was I just was getting tired of ditches, trying to fight dust. And this cane thing was a big thing, too. I was like, boy, I could really grow good grain sorghum if I didn't have cane in the field. So when did you probably go 100% no-till? 1991. Okay. I haven't done any any kind of tillage since 91. Wow, that's great. One of the things that you talked about a little is what, what made you decide finally to go 100% no-till and make it work? Well, I remember thinking that there was lots of little things. Sure. That the tillage was one. The wanting to get rid of soil blowing around and moving off-site. I wanted to get rid of a cane problem. Mm-hmm. It also looked like some of the government programs were starting to favor to get into a no-till pro- program. I was actually kind of under the impression from what you know you was hearing on the news that someday there's going to this would be kind of a requirement for government payments. I remember thinking, well, I'm going to learn how to do this. And I won't, I'll be ready to go. Right. Too bad that didn't happen. <laughs> I guess so. You know, it's forcing people to do something. I'm not much into that. person's got to make up his mind or he does a right. really poor job. Right. To be real honest with you. Well, early on, you were pretty much in a two-crop rotation, like corner milo followed by soybeans, and then you got to longer rotations? Yeah, and that all happened after uh, we went up on uh, the bus trip no telling the planes had to Dwayne Beck's research farm, and I think it was 96. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I remember listening to him talk about rotations, adding diversity into your system, and, you know, use the intensity of what you were planning to control, you know, your water use. And that was the reason we went and really started using a lot of wheat in our rotation at that time. Well, you you had you had wheat and you were you tried double cropping soybeans, right? Right, and then did a lot of relay, you know, planting soybeans into wheat early. When would be the date you would uh, relay intercrop those soybeans? You had to do it before the wheat joined. Okay. So it'd be pretty early, April, you know, right in there. You'd have to be early April. Mm-hmm. And those wheat wheat was about usually about three inches tall. Okay. So did this work for you or not? Yes. It was uh, it was a management thing. You know, if it started raining, then you couldn't do it. <laughs> and <laughs> so I get, the wheat would then join. Um, my, my biggest thing was trying to get the beans up and growing for the wheat really with canopy. I tried some in 15-inch rows, and that worked better. And then about that time the best crops that we were having was planting grain sorghum after wheat. And so I just gave up. And another thing I didn't like about planting soybeans into wheat stubble was when you harvested it in the fall, this was pre before we considered using cover crops. Then you would have, that actually caused more, you know, the, the, the straw would drift into drifts when it rained. Sure. And it's just, it ended up being a nightmare. So we really went to a lot of green sorghum at that time. And that ended up, that was profitable for quite a few years. We had pretty good luck with that. 
Right. I just and I gave it up honest with you, Frank. I could not ever get wheat where it was making the money. You'd work and he was making the money on the Milo end. Yeah. The story I pulled up brings back some memories because you're talking about this land deck intercoat technology. Um and you, you must have tried it about as much as anybody. We don't seem to it seemed to have disappeared. We don't seem to have it anymore. Frank, if I think if I had thought about growing wheat in thirty inch rows mm-hmm. and that would technology would have worked. It it did work. It just it didn't work good enough that you would make enough money to pay for the coating. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Well, this and for people who don't know what it was about, it was a seed coating that delayed emergence for 20 to 30 days. So by wheat harvest, your soybeans were still less than maybe 10 inches tall. Isn't that about exactly. right? Yes, right. sir. It was a polymer coating that was temperature sensitive. Right. And it worked like a, a window shade. So mm-hmm. the blind would be down and the water molecule couldn't get through it. And it warmed up. It opened up and let right. the water molecule in. And uh, I think the nerve problem that, looking back on this, that they set the temperature to open at too cool. Okay. It should have been warmer soil temp. But that's, by the time we got to there, they had gave up and went to some other thing that paid more money. Well, they sold out to Monsanto. Uh, Why hasn't anybody else tried this same approach since then, since the 90s? I think it worked pretty good on soybeans. Didn't Mm -hmm. work good at all on corn. Yeah, right. And uh, I think cost, you couldn't pay for it. Yeah. And there's other ways, you know, I'll be real honest with you, as time went on, we did, got other ways that we figured out other ways to get to the same place right, <laughs> without right. that cost of the of the coating. I think it would be great for a fertilizer. That's what I think. Yeah. You could have a coating on fertilizer release one at different temperatures. Right. So it has... Like timers at least, but that, like you said, that company sold out. So, hey, my God, in fertilizer, you could put it on all at once and have half of it come out as a side dress if the, when the temperature warmed up. And then later in the summer, you know, it would another release. I think it would save time on trips, but would pay for it. But when you started out, what kind of equipment were you using? Nineteen ninety one or so. When I first started out, I first time I tried to no-till. I tried with an old lister, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier. I tried with a shoe runner planter. It's what we had at the time. But when we moved to a double disc opener, that's when we started really having more luck with no-till and uh, worked for years and years, different ideas to get the seed down in the soil. You know, and that sure. ended up being better down pressure systems better disc systems that would last longer, seed tube guards that would last. I worked with a gentleman named Phil Kessler, mm-hmm. RK Products, and you know him, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. And I worked with Phil a lot, and with him came up with the Mojo wires, you know, that Exapta. Yeah. Made the first set in our shop, or second uh-huh. set. I had a friend, Phil had been some to a buddy's house of mine, the buddy called me and said, Phil's stopping by. He wants to work with you on something. And we built Mojo Wires right there in our shop. <laughs> what, what is called Mojo Wire now? Explain to our listeners what they are. Well, it's a wire that goes onto a Keaton that increases the down pressure and holds it down into the seed tube trench. Okay. And it works with, in conjunction with another thing I worked with Phil on with the seed tube guards that... Uh-huh. Uh, 
are wider and are hard. I'll bet you I tried a hundred styles. <laughs> My brother got tired of me taking the planter apart and trying stuff. You know, you know I'd be planting and filled. Send some, said, try these out. <laughs> Take planter apart, put them back on. It was a lot of fun. So you'd have 10% of your crop that got planted late just because you were fooling around. <laughs> That's what my brother would say. We'd get done if I wouldn't be messing around with stuff. I, my brother got tired of my experiment. Let's just put it that way. So what are you running as equipment today? Double disc openers on it's actually John Deere, uh, but, you know, White and, and uh, Kinsey, they all got kind of the same system. Got I put narrow wheels, gauge wheels on. And discs that we change pretty often, seed tube guard. Some rows I have the Keaton's with Mojo wires, and some I have a, a Ford press wheel, what I call it, is mm-hmm. something we've been working on. And then, of course, I have spike Thompson wheels on the back. Put fertilizer on right behind the row, and the drill is sort of the same sort of, some modifications, some pretty much, you know, kind of leave it standard. Yeah. So you mentioned the Thompson wheel. Tell me about the Thompson wheel. My first ones I built was a lot like, um, well, we'd seen something down in South America in 1999. And they didn't look like what we had, but they weren't a solid rubber wheel. And they weren't, they had a deal down there. It was kind of a wheel and a disc, all kind of one thing. Okay. And so I came back here and tried to build the same thing. And I don't know what the difference was that they would not work in our soils they would ball up and you'd have a bigger round wheel. <laughs> and so I started, my son and I would sit in the shop with actually with a cutoff saw and cut either a disc blade. We tried disc blades. Then we, I can't remember, we'd come up with something else that we would, that was round and we made bearings for them. We'd cut them off. Long story, they had sharp points on them. I remember that. I remember walking around the planter one day and I was getting poked and I went back to the shop and I cut the points off. And it's like all things, it's not a lot. I, you're just trying things, you know. Sure. And they work super good. And I got sent some out to a friend of mine, which you know, Matt Hagney, who's yeah, good yeah. Pa- passed away. Yeah. I sent these Matt, and I said, hey, try these out. And uh, he come back, and he's like, you're onto something. These work <laughs> like so superior than anything we got out here. Yeah. You need to get a patent. Don't show it to anybody. So he got me in touch with a patent lawyer. And uh, he also, we on the bearing, you know, we, we have a, a pretty good warranty on the bearing on it. Mm-hmm. And we were running 202s in those days, a couple of those. And uh, I was having some housings built up in Topeka at a, at a shop. And, mm-hmm. and Matt goes, those bearings are not good enough. We're going to sell them. they got to be so good. We need to come up with a bearing. And I've been playing with this. I, I'm not even going to tell you it was what it was off of or not, but I'd run across some kind of a bearing and I had been trying to wear it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told Matt, I said, I think this bearing number is what you're looking for. And yeah. he did that and he got a hold of the manufacturer and we had it even made more robust for what. And then that's how we came up with a bearing that would last. Everything wears out before the bearing does. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Wow. That, and that was always a nemesis. You know, when you're planting, you start having closing wheels start falling off. That really make you mad. Changing bearings. Who wants to change bearings when you're planting? It's nervous time of the year anyway. 
Well, your experience with Matt taking a look at it reminded me, uh, we did a, one of these um, podcasts earlier with Marion Calmer, who had 15-inch corn heads. And uh, he had a cousin of his who was a de- um, field engineer for deer, and he had him come out and look at the prototype. And the guy took a look at it, and he said, I am, leave- I am leaving the shop right now, and you need to keep your mouth shut and get in touch with a patent lawyer. <laughs> That's the, basically what Matt, I, I mean, by that afternoon, we were talking to somebody, and what Matt liked about them, and myself included, was they shed mud real good, or self-cleaning. Sure. I'm not saying they don't pick up some, but boy, it, you don't have to get out and clean them. That's yeah. just, that was the beauty of them. Still using them today? Yes, sir. Still nice. same. Good. I, matter of fact, I got, I got a collection in my shop of all the different cutouts that we made my son and I did. You know, right. I don't have all of them, but I got a lot and it always tickles me. I look at them. I'm like, whatever made me think that would work. <laughs> <laughs> but right. the part that made it work was, was me getting mad at getting poked. And I w- just took a cutoff fall and I started changing the shape of everything. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, they started working better. Right. You never know. You never know. We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Keith Thompson in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-H-E-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter filling us in with a little more background on the IntelliCoat seed coating from Landec Ag. Well, earlier in this podcast, Keith Thompson talked about the Landec IntelliCoat polymer coating that regulates seed corn water intake. This goes back to the early 2000s, and it was a... uh, coating that they put on seed corn that let you plant two to three weeks earlier than normal and it was being developed and there was a patented intercoat polymer technology to keep water out of the seed until conditions were ideal for germination. They tested it for a number of years and the idea was it would provide a wider planting window that could lead to more efficient use of labor and machinery and should lead to uh, higher corn yields. So they chose uh, hybrids to coat with this coating that had cold tolerance, early season vigor, strong emergence, strong root systems, and disease resistance, which kind of fits the no-till picture. So they'd studied the hybrids water uptake and how these seeds respond under extreme cold weather conditions. It was an idea that apparently was ahead of its time because in recent years, over the last 10 or 15 years, the technology has kind of faded away. But as Keith said earlier, Maybe they set the uh, point for releasing the water at too cold a temperature. Maybe it should have been better. But anyway, Keith and a number of other farmers gave it a try, but then uh, Landec was sold to Monsanto, and this technology kind of pretty much disappeared in recent years. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lester and Keith Thompson. So you've been big, I think, on on-farm research for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, I, enough that my son and brother won't let me hardly do it anymore. They get 
I have to be careful where I do it at and how much. <laughs> so what did you really look at and what did you learn from what you were doing on the farm research? Well, one of the things with cover crops that we did was I started planting covers, and what the real reason we started doing it was to uh, allow us to get in the field quicker in the spring and allow us to plant them down in our bottoms where they'd flood and keep the moisture in the soil away. Right. That was the two reasons we started. And so I was planting covers and strips so you could, you know, replicated strips, see, you know, at that time we was trying to see if there was any yield hit, what was all going on. Right. And my brother would just hated these things. <laughs> Mostly because his buddies at the elevator would tell him, you're never going to be able to kill it. <laughs> all right. And he would actually, there, there was two times he went out and killed these covers before we wanted them killed. Because yeah. he was positive that if he didn't do it that day, it would never happen. <laughs> and uh, the third year, that, this is a true story, third year, and I remember my brother was mad at us. He, my <laughs> son and I was planting these covers and doing all these things. And the third year, he walks in the shop, and Ben and I were getting ready for our morning, you know, how you do, you sit there and talk what you're going to do today. And my brother walks in the shop that morning, and he goes, well, we're planting covers on every acre. <laughs> <laughs> And we, my son, I looked at each other like, and Ben said the same thing with his head, like, that's what we've been wanting to do. Yeah. <laughs> we've been fighting you. And I remember asking, what, what made you change your mind? He said, you know, I've been spraying and spraying. And I, he said, every place we've got to cover, we have no weeds. <laughs> and sure. that was, I got to asking my friends, I said, hey, my brother says he knows, and they're like, yeah, there's less weeds. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I got kind of a funny story how you fight somebody in your operation, and they're the one that makes the. Right, right. Well, it's. They they noticed something that I missed. I think that's maybe more embarrassing. Well, it's good he did. It was a chance for you and your son to quit arguing with him. There you go. Yeah, made life a lot simpler. Early on, you did some fertilizer placement work in which you were uh, three by three plus in furrow fertilization, right? Mm-hmm. What was the result of that? You know, it became inconclusive. The mm-hmm. thing that I really learned, though, is that it wasn't how much I put off to the side. It was how much I put in furrow sure. and the kind of fertilizer that we were using and we started putting our micronutrients that the soil test said was missing in furrow with mm-hmm. a little bit of nitrogen and P and K. Right. As far as the side-by-side, we quit doing it because it was just inconclusive that in our soils, yeah, in right. my area. I can't speak for anybody else. Right. So you had some interesting results with phosphorus too, right? You know, I did. We couldn't figure out what was going on. You know why we were seeing these phosphorus problems, mm-hmm. and we tried different things. You know what cured my phosphorus problem? No, was what? Cover crops. Mm-hmm. Once we started growing cover crops, I, I haven't been able to. I haven't had a problem since. Right. Yeah. Just except I told you earlier that we've learned that you eat, when we're planting corn and grain sorghum that we need to have some in row. Mm-hmm. Soybean populations. You looked at this too, right? Yeah, I did a study with K-State three years and replicated it. Oh, my gosh, it was that. I'm glad the 
county agent was willing to do all the work and all the stat stuff. We just had to, I had to make sure I got it the reps right the way he wanted them mm-hmm. in the, in the fields, and he took care of all that. The thing we discovered that we were planting way too many soybeans. Yeah, just way too many. So what's the population you're using now? We kind of shoot somewhere between 100 and 110. Actually, the most profitable was 80,000, but heat and weed control gets to be more of a concern, and we've kind of decided that about 100, we get save enough on seed and maximize yield. So we just like, all right, we should plant for 100, and that's kind of – Things don't go quite right, and you end up with 80, you're still happy. Yeah. That's like people years ago who were planting 150 or so, and they did some trials where they did 80, and the 80 was better than everything else, but they didn't have the courage to do it <laughs> across <laughs> the whole field or the whole farm. Right. right. So you got some, yeah. uh, at 100, you think you're getting some uh, canopy and weed control benefits. Hmm? We, And that's all dependent upon, and we use a, a drill. And we're on 10 inch centers, mm-hmm. and we go to a lot of trouble to make sure that the drill um, singulates sure. the best that we can. I've set everything up in the with the drill and bought oh the pipes that go up got little bumps in them and a thing that blows the air off uh, mm-hmm. at the tower. So yeah. it's just gravity feed. Yeah, really important that it's a pretty even separated and we just don't have troubles with weeds yeah well that's great right so I would um, say we don't have troubles but we right. are able to not have what you would think right are you using a lot less herbicides uh yes and and that's uh due to there's two and the, the cover crop thing really makes a difference on that mm-hmm. we're getting down to so usually a burn down with a pre, and if things go right, you never have to go back. And sometimes brother goes back one more time. I mentioned earlier, cane. We still fight are fighting to get rid of cane, and cane. And our goal is to get rid of it in the soybean field. Mm-hmm. What do you use in the control cane? Usually Roundup or Liberty. Okay. Depends on the bean variety. Are you switching between Roundup and Liberty beans from year to year or not? I go about three years using one and switch and do something else. That seems to be working good. We've learned not to try to mix having Roundup and Liberty beans. Sure. Or, you, you know, it's just plant one kind, stick that two or three years and move on to something else and kind of change the chemistries up. Right. Well, you got a couple of crops a lot of our listeners won't know much about, mung beans and sesame. Tell me about those crops. Well, the mung bean, you know, I plant it just to have in my cover crop mix. Okay. And I, and the sesame is, this will be our second year going sesame, and we're going to try to extract the oil out of it with uh, CO2 extraction. I don't really, my cousins once got me in on this deal. And he seems to feel that there's a big market for sesame oil. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could remember the name of the company that he works with right now. That's down in Oklahoma. And they're really, I guess, Frank, I'm probably going to get this wrong, okay? <laughs> but there's been kind of a one bunch that grew sesame. 
Sure. And then, and but this group that he's worked with has a different kind of sesame seed that they don't. They are growing, mm-hmm. and we're been experimenting to see, you know, how well it grows this far north. Yeah. And to see if it's uh, will be a viable for an oil crop. Yeah. And so we're really, honestly, this is it's such experimentation. I only grew five acres last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can tell I didn't know what we were doing if you came and looked at it. <laughs> but that we learned a lot. You know, that's that's the reason you do these little experiments. How uh, you learn it, more from your mistakes than you do your successes. You're really better off to have it go go south the first year than to go the right direction because then you get to thinking you know too much. <laughs> All right. So on sesame, you think you will, farmers would have to process it in oil on the farm and then sell it? Well, that's the way I understand what they want sure. to do. Right. Yeah. So tell me about your cover crops. What mixes you're using or how long you've been doing it, how it's working? Well, the first time we saw covers being used when we went to Argentina in 99. Mm-hmm. And I went back in 2002 and toured with, down South America. Was uh, Actually, we went down with the idea to go to the Opera Seed Conference. We started off in Brazil, ended up in Paraguay, met uh, my good friend Ralph Derpsch. Yeah, right. And Ralph took us on down into, it was at um, Rosario. Mm-hmm. That's where the conference was that year. And Robert Pirelli was there, and we got to meet um, Carlos Corvetto again. Sure. Right. And, you know, all the guys. The first time I got to meet Adamir Caragari. Mm-hmm. And he really, we had stopped at his farm and he was gone, but we got to see some of the cover crop plots and Rolf took us to some guys and we watched them rolling cover crops and, you know, they were eight foot tall. Yeah. Wow. Really? Yeah, really. And they showed us how they could plant through it and all the things that they saw that was going on. Um, they were using it most of the down there, tried to cut back on herbicide costs. Got Adamir up here, and you've had Adamir speak at your conference, and yeah, just great guy, great guy. Well, we've had Roberto speak, we've had Rolf speak, we've had Carlos speak. Yeah. How are you uh, knocking down your cover crops? We have ever since I remember we started no-tilling. I always planted into living stuff. All right, planted the green. You didn't know what it was called. Didn't he? Well, and part of that was, you know, I think the first we started off killing it, and then we discovered right off the bat that if you did that and it rained, you never got to plant again. Yeah. And and so then we just like that only took one two years to figure that one out. This was back in, uh, oh man, nineties when mm. we were doing this. We weren't growing cover crops, but they were uh, just you know you would call them they were winter annuals and weeds and stuff. Right. Right. Just kill them. And then, then when we, so then when we moved to growing cover crops, really started planting cover crops. And yes, first time, 2002 was probably the first year that I really, I started doing some experimentation. Mm-hmm. And by six or seven, we had them on, we'll say 30% of the farm. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, there was a lot of things we were trying to learn. It's still at that time was trying to decide if it was, we was worried about the hit there might of to be to the yield, and it wasn't until right. later, and I've already mentioned about the weed thing, that that got to be a big, that was one of our big reasons to change, and then later, you know, then everybody started noticing these soil health 
things. So you'd plant certain cover crop mixes and a year or two later down the line, and that's how we did. We planted a cover crop mix. Next year, you know, I honestly didn't see anything. It was two years later, and I'm harvesting this field, and it's making 30 bushel more. You had to see his farm, but you had it was it was all the same farm, but there was a road that went up the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to cross the road, and then when I crossed the road, I got into a place where we planted a, oh, I'm trying to remember, it was oats and teas and something else. It was a grazing thing my son was uh, going to harvest for uh, forage. I crossed the road, and man, I was fantastic Milo, you know, making like 30 bushel more than what I just cut. And, and nothing changed, nothing, yeah. except I crossed the stupid road. <laughs> Got my brother to come by, and I said, hey, did you do hey, something here different, spray something different, you do something? No, I no, nothing different. Then my son shows up, and I get him. I said, you got to get in the combine and see this. You won't believe what this place is making. And I said, would you put extra fertilizer on here because of something? That, you know, I no, I didn't do nothing. And like, so about two weeks later, my son comes in the shop and says, figured it out. <laughs> and I said, Fig- figured out what? <laughs> you know, and he said, well, why, why Larson South made so much more? He said, that's when we had that cover crop two years ago. Uh huh. Wow. And we saw that for two more years, that yield increase. Mm-hmm. And so that really fired us up to, hey, wait a minute, there's something going on here that doesn't show up the first year. What do you think it was? Well, I didn't have no idea at that time, you know. But looking yeah. back and what I've learned is the things that we planted uh, bumped up the fungal component of soil. Yeah. That's what the difference was. We got the fungal. You've heard it plenty of times that most of our soils are bacterial dominant. Right. And when you start planting cover crops, you got something in there that is more fungal friendly. That sure helps you. But it takes a while for that to build up. It's not overnight. Right. Have you uh, rolled any of your cover crops or not? We started to build a roller. And I honestly have got to come to the conclusion I like them standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heat and wind for us to protect them from that. Right. I think some places that I've seen those places that roll them is the thing that to do, like what we saw in South America, but they didn't have the heat and the wind we do here. So I'm, I'm most, I like leave it standing to protect that little seedling till it gets up and running. So how high would this cover crop be when you're planting? Oh, it depends on what it is, you know, Frank, but when I'm planting corn, um, I'm going to guess knee-high would be okay. where it's at, most of the things that's there. And my son has got to the place that he does not to, like to plant soybeans till, especially the rye and the grass parts of it, have really kind of started to set the seeds. So mm-hmm. the lignin content is really high, and it stays around. Yeah. So I'd say that would be anywhere from four to six feet tall. What's uh, the mix you use uh, most of on your farm cover crop mix? Well, depends on the time of the year, but like if we're doing it into uh, grain sorghum or beans, uh, I've kind of figured out a, how to fly it on. Mm-hmm. So it's growing earlier, and and we keep putting it on earlier and earlier, and I'm thinking we still aren't putting it on early enough. But at that time, we have um, rye, a little bit of brassicas, some clovers, some buckwheat, and some flax. That's kind of the stuff that will grow in the fall. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, sometimes we'll throw in more than that, but that's kind of what we've been doing. I've had good luck with it. I think that talk to my good friend, Rick Bieber, that I am shortchanging myself by not having more. Plant the same amount per acre, mm-hmm. but just less of each one. So what crop would you be flying this on to and what date would you be flying it on? We used to be kind of soybeans just before the leaves turn yellow. Okay. And another thing that I've talked to, uh, uh, I think you've met Candy Thomas. Sure. And Candy, that she was telling me, it doesn't work for the go west. And I'm like, we always have really good luck. And then, you know, the last two years, I'd have some fields that, like, were really poor. And what I have found out by going out and looking like, like what's the difference? Why is this field so good and this other one all flown on the same day, kind of the same mix, same soybean variety, all kind of in the same place? And then I decided, you know, once you get soybeans, and here we don't have a lot, they just, a lot of times don't grow tall, but the taller they are when you're flying it on, the bigger and better your chances of success in soybeans. And corn, at this point, about the time the corn starts drying down, kind of like August, mid-August. Sure. Uh, but I've been seeing some other people that's having more luck planting corn when it's about planting in the corn when it's knee-high, which makes perfect sense because when you read the studies about weed control in the back in the day, right? Uh, they didn't see any yield loss if you could get the corn up to a foot tall, and if it was full of weeds, it didn't hurt your yield. So mm-hmm. I would like to try to get some cover crops planted earlier, especially where my son wants to graze stuff. That would really make a big deal. That'd be yeah. a big deal. So he's he's grazing cover crops, but is he also cutting some off as forage for, like, winter feed? We have. Say we grow, like this year we got triticale. So I have two rows of triticale. A 30-inch gap, two rows of triticale, and I plan to go in and plant soybeans in that 30-inch gap. Sure. And what I was saying, why don't we take, you know, one of those, two of those fields and plant grazing stuff, and then you'll have a place to graze cattle later this summer. I think we'll make as much money. And to be honest, we haven't made a decision if we're going to do that or not. Right. We're still thinking about it. But that's. That's that the only time we ever plant something that we would actually harvest for, for, you know, rotten bales or something. Right. What we like, my son has been our most luck as we plant, as we fly these covers on sooner and sooner is so that in the spring, bring the cattle into these fields that have covers. And he, you know, he has uh, paddocks, breaks them in paddocks and fixes it so they can graze across and come back at least twice. And then he uses his cover crops so he doesn't have to go to our native pastures till three or four weeks later than most people do. Mm-hmm. And, and then the native gets grown up enough uh, that since we started doing this, he doesn't have problems with, you know, people get tired of feeding their cattle all winter or right. supplementing them. Well, by about the time that people want to take them out to their native or tame pastures, wherever they're going to graze them on that they're not, well, we bring them into our cover crop fields and let them graze there and let those pastures grow. And then he hasn't seen problems with running out of feed late in the summer. Yeah. 
And then by then, we got another cover crop coming on, so he can come back and start grazing them again. Right. So you're 100% cover crops on all your acres. How many acres would you graze? Oh, I'm going to say he does not the same farms every year, but I'm going to say two or 300 acres. We're going to put fences up around a couple of fields this year we've never had cattle on. Yeah. See a big improvement. One of the things that we've done, Frank, is in, in Argentina, we saw this way back when I went down there in 99, and they were using so little fertilizer. We was like, how do you grow 150 bushel? fertilized corn and used 70 pounds of in and hardly any that and well that's just the way it works and so we went and actually you know it's funny to, they did honestly they did that's those are questions we don't know yeah so we went to the buenos aires university and talked to some soil people there and their explanation at that time was that they were pulling deep carbon reserves deep in the soil and someday they would be like us in the united states and have put on normal well what they were doing was they was using this perennial pasture for four to six years, and then they would grow crops for four to six years, and they'd go back to perennial pasture. And then we've, you know, since learned that when you've got a green growing root, the root exudates are feeding the soil and building up the natural fertility in the soil, and they're putting carbon back. And that's what those little boys at that time, nobody had an answer, but looking back, that's what's going on. And so when Adamir spoke here, I think he spoke at your conference in 2016, he was talking about since I, we were there in 99, they decided that six years, five to six years was when they were maximizing income, profitability from the pasturing going back to crops. So. I came back and I all excited, you know. My son right. couldn't make listen to Adamir cattle problems, and I'm telling him what we ought to do. And he said, "Dad, I've been trying to talk you into this for seven years." <laughs> uh, shows you that you should let the kid. So you know, I, boy, I'll be honest with you. At that time, I like, okay, I'm gonna quit telling him what to do. I'm gonna yeah. let him run this thing. And we planted our first perennial pasture in uh, 2016. And that came out of perennials, and we've been growing crops on it. And then on another farm, we've got our planted this perennials again, and it's on its, I think, third year this year. Yeah, that sounds great. So that's kind of different. And both of these farms, in my lifetime, I don't ever remember anything being there except crops. Yeah. Do you see a possibility of making money off of, off carbon credits? Oh. I, I guess so. I'm not. I'm not really for or against it. How's mm-hmm. that sound? I think it's 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 very hard to prove, and it's very easy to lose what carbon you've stored if you make some mistakes. So you'd be, if you've been paid to be a better soil caretaker, that makes more sense to me than trying to figure out how much carbon you stored if you right. were doing principles of soil health. Right. If it, I'd be more for being paid if people were helped. I, I'm going to say rather than paid, helped to learn how to do that rather than paid to store carbon. I think right. that's hard to qualify. Uh, I think you've met Dr. Chuck Rice. Sure. And talked about him the same thing, and he'll he'll tell you it's hard to get your mind wrapped around. 
Right. Well, the thing that confuses me is if you're renting a farm for 10 years and you get carbon credits off it and all of a sudden the landowner rents it to someone else who's using minimum tillage or conventional tillage, then all the carbon is gone. Exactly. That's that's uh, that's the part that, to me, and we've both heard about guys that's really good at at taking care of their farm and no tilling and being good steered and they would uh, lose the farm and some yeah. guy come in and work it and harvest. They think it's free. It's not. If a young farmer came to you and said, I want to no till and I've got all these things, what would be the two biggest things you would caution him to look out for so he doesn't make mistakes? Oh, well, you got to have the equip- right equipment and set mm-hmm. up right. Because right. if you don't get a stand, everything else you and I have talked about doesn't happen. Doesn't right. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be first is understanding what's important about the equipment. And then don't expect miracles in the first three years. If you, can, if you can believe and follow for three years, once you get to that fourth year, well, then, like my son always tells people, says, the magic starts happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it used to be in the early days, someone would say, I don't know about no-till. I think I'll have to plow in after five years. And I used to say to them, well, go ahead, you know, give it a shot, see what happens. Well, in the fifth year, they never plowed. Right. They, they kind of thought they'd have to, but they didn't have to. Yeah, and once you get used to doing all those silly things, because, you know, the the good Lord and nature goes through a lot of trouble to get a perfect seed bed all winter. Right. And right. you just got to take advantage of it. That's where that equipment being set up right is. Right. And then the next thing, what, three to five years. I'm, 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 I'll have to remember your little deal about, well, I'd at least wait five years for I plow. <laughs> That's a good reason. Right. Hey, we've talked about an hour. Is there anything that I've missed you'd like to talk about? Hmm. No, other than a friend of mine, Rick Bieber, keeps saying that, all these things we do, we really want to be good soil caretakers. Right. And so, to me, that's the uh, tells. You know, we we talk about uh, regenerative ag and sustainable, and there's lots of words out there that are used. One thing that I've decided that what you want to do is be the best soil caretaker you can be. And if you've got a healthy soil, then everything else kind of falls into place. Healthy wise, right? For the food right. you grow and everything. So to me, that's the only thing we haven't talked about is I want to be a good soil caretaker rather than say that I do this kind of farming or that. Right, right. That's great. Right. Well, a lot of these terms that we're he- hearing about regenerative and sustainable and rotations, everything, no tillers have been doing it for years. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You remember we used to. I remember coming to your conference and, and going to classes to figure out what was the best rotation. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's not really where it's at. <laughs> but we didn't know that then. Right. You know, that was where we were at. Right. Right. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to let you go, but you did a fabulous job. I appreciate it. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate you uh, asking me on. Okay. I enjoyed knowing you for all these years. I know the first time I met Carlos was at Corvetto was at your conference, and that man set me on to where I'm at. Him and Dr. Dwayne Beck were two that I got to meet through you, and Mm -hmm. uh, 
Those were two of my idols. All right, I'll let you go, but thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Frankie. Have a great day. Okay, take care. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more with a little known no-till farmer fact. Well, Julia, today we're going to look at something that's a little more fun, and it's about the National No-Tillage Conference and how over the years it's brought a few couples together. Back in 1996, there was a a couple from Minnesota that got engaged during the National No-Tillage Conference. And the rumor going around was that they were planning to honeymoon the next year at the National No-Tillage Conference in Des Moines. I don't know whether it happened or not. But then in 2000, we had a couple, there was a gentleman from Western Australia who traveled 10,500 miles to Des Moines to meet his girlfriend who was in England and she traveled 4,100 miles from London to Des Moines and they became engaged at the 2000 No-Till Conference in Des Moines. And then also in 1999, there was a farmer from uh, Indiana who was in the bar and met a lady from uh, St. Louis and they stayed in uh, touch for months, got together when they could and it ended up that he sold his farm in Indiana, moved to Missouri, took a job in ag sales to be closer to her and they eventually tied the knot and got married. And she said, I would not have met the man of my dreams had it not been for the National Motillage Conference. So the National Motillage Conference and your crew will always have a special place in our hearts. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Keith Thompson for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.